A hallmark of the Jewish experience as the myriad of brachos intertwined into the fabric of daily living. From the moment we wake up, when we say Amkila Sudayim, until the moment we fall asleep and say Hamapil, we make bracha after bracha on every imaginable aspect of our lives. Before and after eating, throughout davening, even after going to the bathroom. Every milestone of life is accompanied by a unique bracha as well, from the birth of a child, potentially followed by a bris milah and pidyon haben, and subsequently to mark marriage and even death. Life's milestones are marked and uplifted through brachos. However, although we may consider brachos to be a pillar of our lives, they haven't always existed as they do now. Until the Anshe Knesset Hagdola, the men of the Great Assembly, institutionalized the specific texts and recital of brachos, there was no standard set of brachos or prayer. The only brachos that are deraisa, that are actually commanded by the Torah itself, are Birchas Amazon, the blessing after bread, and potentially Birchas Torah. The blessing on Torah, which is a machlokas, is an argument among the Rishonim. All other brachos and the official texts were instituted by Chazal, by the sages, in the Second Temple era. And this begs the question, what changed? What prompted the Anshe Knesset Akdola to enact such a major change in Jewish daily life? But before we can understand the shift that necessitated this institutional change, we have to first explore the nature of brachos in general. Now, the common translation of a bracha's opening, Baruch Ato Hashem, is blessed are you Hashem, blessed are you God. What does this mean? Can Hashem, the infinite and perfect God, really benefit from our blessings? And more generally, what is the nature and purpose of a bracha? Now, in order to understand brachas, we have to also understand klalos, curses. And in this week's parsha, Parsha's Balak, Bilam is hired by Balak to curse the Jewish people. And when attempting to do so, he declares elaborate blessings instead. So it's clear that brachos reflect a positive force and curses signify the opposite effect. But we have to delve deeper in an attempt to understand their profound spiritual nature. The foundation of any discussion of brachos first requires an understanding of Hashem, and specifically in how he relates to the physical world. Hashem is infinite beyond physicality, unconfined by time or space. He's not within this world, nor is he a being. The world and being itself is within him. Hashem is absolute oneness. He's not constructed of any pieces or parts, containing absolutely no finitude or multiplicity. Our finite and physical world, on the other hand, exists in a realm of time and space, of multiplicity made up of things containing pieces and parts, not like Hashem. 
So what then connects Hashem to this world? How does Hashem, the transcendent and infinite, how does He connect to and manifest within our finite and physical world? The answer is through bracha, the flow of abundance and multiplicity that stems from Hashem's transcendent oneness. Bracha represents the flow of transition between the infinite oneness and particulate two-ness, where Hashem's divine energy, His Shefa, flows into this physical world. So, bracha represents tosefes veriboy, the flow of abundance and multiplicity that stems from Hashem's transcendent oneness. And we'll soon elaborate how our brachos are directly related to this process. In order to understand the concept of bracha, we first have to look at the Hebrew word itself, bracha. In Hebrew, a word is not merely a description, but a revelation of the essential and objective nature of the thing itself. In other languages, words are simply arbitrarily chosen and agreed upon conventions that refer to a certain object or concept. And these conventions are accepted as a practical means to enable communication. How else are we going to know that when I want you to pass the cup, that you should pass the cup? So we call it a cup. Please pass the cup. In Hebrew, however, each word is an objective revelation of that thing's very essence and nature. And this is why the very word for a word in Hebrew is the very same as that for a thing. Davar. Davar means a word. It also means a thing. Because a word is essentially that which describes the thing itself. And the reason for this is as follows. Speech is the process of taking that which is beyond words, that which beyond finite form, and giving it concrete form and expression. When we communicate with other people through words, we encase our abstract and infinite thoughts into finite words in order to give them concrete and finite expression into the world. And this is the mechanism that Hashem used to create the world. He took that which is infinite, that which is spiritual, and He condensed it into a finite physical expression so that spiritual and ethereal essence has now finite and physical form. That's our world. And that's why the Torah describes Hashem's creative process as a form of speech. Hashem spoke existence into being. Hashem brought the world into existence through the letters of the Aleph base. And thus by analyzing Hebrew words and the letters themselves that comprise them, we can detect the thing's very essence and nature. Because speech and words are the finite expressions of the essence of a thing. Now, the Maharal describes the letter Bays as the leather of Tunis, multiplicity and physicality, and the characteristics of our physical world. Aleph, on the other hand, is the letter of oneness, transcendence, and spirituality, reflecting Hashem and the spiritual dimension. Aleph is the very first letter in the alphabet, and it has the numerical value of one. It's a silent letter reflecting its spiritual and transcendent nature. It also reflects spiritual elevation. 
as expressed in many words that have the word Aleph, Aleph, Lam, and Pei, at its root. La'alef means to reach, to elevate, or to lift to a higher spiritual dimension. Aluf refers to the highest ranking in military possession. And Aleph, a thousand, is the highest number in the Hebrew decimal system, as the Torah only counts by thousands. As a matter of fact, the very physical makeup of the letter Aleph denotes its elevated spiritual level as well. The Ramchal points out that the letter Aleph is comprised of three smaller letters. Two Yuds and then one Vav in the middle. The numerical value of these three letters is the same as Yudke Vavke 26. Which is, Yudke Vavke is the name of Hashem himself. Again, that which is transcendent and that which is complete oneness. The oneness of Aleph can be held in stark contrast to the letter Bays, which is the letter of Tunis. Now, there is an enigmatic Midrash which states that the letter Bays was chosen out of all the 22 letters in the Aleph Bays to begin the Torah. The Torah starts with Bereshis, with a Bays. Now, the Midrash explains that Hashem's decision to do so, to start the Torah with a Bays, was because Hashem declared that the letter base stands for the word bracha. So many commentaries, including the Ibn Ezra, they struggle to understand this bizarre explanation. After all, the letter base also stands for many bad things as well. So what does this mean that because the letter base stands for bracha, it deserves to start the Torah? So the Maharal explains in Tiferes Yisrael, he explains this Midrash in a profound and beautiful fashion. He explains that base doesn't stand for the word bracha. It is the letter of bracha. Base represents the letter of Tunis and the letter of multiplicity. Bracha represents the word of Tunis and the word of multiplicity. Every letter in the word Baruch, which is the root, the Shoresh of the word Bracha, is a letter of multiplicity. Bez is the numerical value of 2. Chaf has the numerical value of 20, and Reish has the value of 200. 2, 20, 200. Amazingly, these are all the letters of Tunis. And the reason behind this is beautiful and yet so simple. Bracha itself is the very idea of Tunis of taking the oneness of Hashem and expressing it into the world in the form of tunis, of multiplicity, of tosefes veriboy. And this is why the Torah begins with the letter base. The Torah itself is a physical array of finite words, all of which are a loyal reflection and emanation of Hashem's wisdom and absolute oneness. Furthermore, the Torah begins by describing Hashem's creation of the physical world, a process most appropriately encapsulated by the letter Bez, the letter of Tunis that stems from oneness. That's what creation was. The letter Bez reflects the process of Hashem's oneness becoming expressed into our physical world. And this is in stark contrast to the Aseris Hadibros, which begin with an Aleph. Because while the episode of creation reflects the finite expression of multiplicity that stems from oneness, our physical world that stems from Hashem, Ma'an Torah, 
was the exact opposite. It was the elevation and ascension from Tunis, from our physical world, to oneness to Hashem. An absolute unparalleled experience of truth, of oneness, and the transcendent spiritual dimensions of reality. That's what Ma'an Torah was. It was an experience of Hashem Himself. And it therefore began with the letter of oneness and transcendence, Aleph. Now, receiving bracha, what's receiving bracha? What does that mean? Receiving bracha means receiving Hashem's goodness and expression into this physical world. The Ramchal explains in great length in Das Tfunos that Hashem created this world for the sole purpose of giving us bracha. And he translates bracha as tov, as goodness, as shefa, spiritual energy, and or light. In other words, bracha is Hashem's expression, a revelation in this world. Just to give you a little insight, light reveals as Megala. So when we say that the or of Hashem is revealed into this world, we're saying that Hashem expressed himself so we can experience and see and witness and understand and, and receive Hashem in this world. So at this point, we need to create an important distinction. There is a fundamental difference between two-ness that is connected to oneness and spirituality, which we can now refer to as bracha, and two-ness that is purely physical and disconnected or seemingly disconnected from spirituality. It's detached and disconnected two-ness that is lifeless, purposeless, and dead. But two-ness that is connected to oneness is a physicality that is pumping with vibrancy, that's always expanding beyond what appear to be its limits and borders and limitations. Such physicality is always amplified and, and constantly expanding. It's abundant and it's connected to a higher spiritual source. And this is a physicality that is rooted in bracha, that's fully connected back to its spiritual root. And when we recite brachos and say Baruch Ato Hashem, we're not blessing Hashem. What does it mean to make a bracha? We're saying Hashem, who's infinite and perfect, he, he doesn't need our blessings and brachos. What are we doing? Rather, there are two simultaneous intentions that we have to have when making a bracha. The first, as you're reading Bachya explains in Kat HaKemach, in the section of bracha, he explains that to make a bracha is to acknowledge Hashem as the source of all blessing, abundance, and goodness in the world. We're not blessing Hashem, we're acknowledging Hashem as the source of blessing. And this is a meditation of hakaras, hatov, of recognizing where good comes from. It's sourcing all of multiplicity and bracha back to its source, back to Hashem himself. In essence, when we make a bracha, we are recognizing Hashem as the source of all bracha. And our second intention, as the Rashba explains in his shoot, and his Shalash and Shuvos, and the Vilna Gon explains as well, the Nefesh Chaim explains this in the second section of Nefesh Chaim. They explain that what does it mean to make a bracha? It's asking Hashem to continue to abundantly manifest into our world and into our personal lives. In other words, the first step, as Rabbi Bachel explains, is to recognize and connect the bracha back to Hashem, back to our source. The second step, 
as the Rashba, the Vilna Gona, and the explain, is to then have this exercise of will. Attempting not only to acknowledge Hashem as the source of bracha, but attempting to bring Hashem and His bracha into this world. We're asking Hashem to manifest abundantly both in the world in general and into my life specifically. Now, Hakaras Hatov, recognizing Hashem as the source of all the good in your life, is an essential part of brachas. Why? Because the only way that we can really bring that bracha into our life is if we negate our ego. If we acknowledge that the goodness and bracha in my life is not coming from my independent self, but it's coming from Hashem. It's coming from my ultimate source and creator. Because only then can I receive more bracha? The Nefesh Chaim explains beautifully that only by recognizing Hashem as your source can you transform yourself into a vessel, into a kli that's capable of receiving more of that very bracha you acknowledged. And what's the logic behind this? It's so beautiful. It's because Hashem can only flow into the space that you allow for Him. When you negate your ego, you make space for Hashem to flow into your life. In that sense, you are recognizing Hashem as the source of bracha. You're appreciating Him, connecting yourself to Him, and then continuing to bring Him back down into your life. And this is the deep idea behind the famous story of Elisha and Avadia's wife. Elisha instructed her to bring vessels, Kalim, for him to pour oil into. And as long as there was a vessel, the oil kept flowing. But the moment she ran out of vessels, the oil stopped flowing. The oil, this oil, was a bracha from Hashem. And it therefore flowed from an infinite source and would have continued to flow as long as there was a vessel to receive it. The same is true regarding all the bracha and shefa from Hashem. Hashem will only flow into the space that we make for Him in our lives. And perhaps this is why we bend our knees in the Shemun Asrei prayer when we say the words Baruch. In the beginning of the first and the end of the first bracha, and at the end of Modim, the bracha of thanksgiving of Hakar Satov. As human beings, we are proud, we're capable, we're intelligent. And Chazal referred to the tall and vertical stature of humans as one of the two characteristics that differentiate between the physical appearance of humans and the physical appearance of animals. There are other distinctions, more conceptual distinctions, but these are the physical distinctions. Our spine represents our stature, but also represents our ego. And by bowing down, this negates our ego. It's us recognizing Hashem as our ultimate source of existence. Yes, we're great, but where does our greatness stem from? When we bend our greatness and realize that it's stemming from Hashem, we negate our ego. And in Hebrew, the word berech, shares the same root as the word bracha. And what does berach mean? It means a knee. And when we say berach, we bend our knee. So one form of negating our ego is by bending our spine. 
that's another bowing we do in the Shmonesri. But another form of bending is not to bend our spine by lowering, negating our ego. It's to bend our knee. And by doing so, we lower our height and stature. Now, the very means by which we receive bracha is by bending our barach, our knee. And what does this refer to? By bending our knee, by bending our barach, we negate our ego and create space for Hashem and His bracha to flow into our lives. It's beautiful. And there's a deeper idea here as well. Bending the knee represents the process of expressing two-ness from oneness. When we stand erect, the leg is one continuous limb. When we bend our knee, we take that oneness, that one limb, and we bend it into two. And this is the very act of creating two-ness from oneness, which is a process we undertake as we become aware of the bracha, the two-ness that Hashem is infusing into our lives. Once again, it's, it's amazing how everything just connects. And this understanding of bracha also sheds light onto a famous Gemara in brachos. The Gemara on Daf Lamed Hey Amin Aleph 35a states that if one fails to make a bracha before taking pleasure, getting hana'ah from this physical world, it's as if he stole from Hashem. Now, the Gemara then questions this by quoting a contradicting source, a Pasuk, that says, The heavens are for Hashem, while the land is for man. And this seems to imply that man is permitted to use the physical world freely. So the Gemara solves this contradiction by stating, Man is stealing from Hashem only when he doesn't make a bracha beforehand. However, once man makes a bracha, it's no longer stealing. So the question is then, what fundamentally changes when we make a bracha? So the simple answer is that a bracha is the means through which we ask permission from Hashem to use His world. And once we do so, we are allowed to partake in it because it is as if Hashem gave us permission to now use His world. However, there's a much deeper layer here. The entire world stems from and therefore belongs to Hashem. Without a bracha, one fails to source him or herself in the world as a whole back to its root, back to Hashem. And in doing so, it's as if one is saying that Hashem is not connected to or manifest within this world. And therefore, when one uses the world in this manner, he is disconnecting it from its spiritual source and stealing it from Hashem. Because the spiritual concept of stealing is the act of ripping an item away from its rightful owner and place. So if one proclaims through his actions that the physical world is not fully connected to Hashem, he's essentially stealing from Hashem, removing the world from its rightful owner and place. However, in making a bracha, you source both the physical world and yourself back to Hashem. And in doing so, you have connected both yourself and this physical world to Hashem, our rightful source. And there's no longer any issue of stealing when we use and enjoy the physical world. We're now part of it, connected to it. 
connected to Hashem himself, the source. Now, klolos, curses, can be understood as the exact opposite of bracha. If bracha is the overflowing and boundless expression of goodness and shefa into this world, klala represents the limitation and constriction of Hashem's flow into this world, replacing abundance with boundaries and restriction. A curse is the attempt to limit Hashem's manifestation and presence in this world. It's important to note, though, that while the concept of klala is often perceived as inherently negative, it's not necessarily true. It does not have to be the case. Bracha represents outflow and endless abundance, while klala represents a limitation of that abundance and endlessness into something finite and limited. So if used correctly, this media, this characteristic of klala, of curse, can actually be constructive and positive. For example, when the use of limitations are implemented only in order to help make the bracha useful and real, the klala itself ends up becoming part of the bracha. For instance, too much rain can result in flooding. So while rain might represent bracha, if it's too much, it can be actually destructive. So a limitation on rain to enable a healthy amount of water is actually a necessary and productive form of limitation. The problem, though, is when klala is used for the purpose of destroying bracha and preventing any bracha from manifesting, like a drought when there's no rain at all. So that balance of klala being used appropriately and constructively can actually turn klala into something that's even within the category of bracha itself. Now the Gemara in Tainus, that Ches Mabez, states that Ein habracha metsuya ele bedavar hasamoy min ha'ayin, that bracha, abundance, can only occur in something that is hidden from the eye. And the logic behind this cryptic statement is profound. When something is not yet seen by the physical eye, it can be anything. The potential is limitless. Hashem can make it into anything. But once, however, the human eye looks at it, it becomes finite, limited, set, and fixed into only that. Once you see it, it can no longer be subject to bracha and increase. It becomes limited. When you see something, you immediately give it boundaries and limitations. And that's the, the logic behind the statement, because the numerical value of re'iya, seeing, is the same as gevura, which means limitation, midas hadin, to construct something, to limit it. They're both the gematria, the numerical value of 216, because something spiritual cannot be seen. And the shama is boundless, containing no boundaries or edges. But something physical, like a body, on the other hand, starts and ends at specific places. It can be seen, it can be pointed to. And that's one of the reasons we're not allowed to count members of Klai Yisrael. It's because counting and pointing to someone reflects the connotation that they are just that, a thing, something that can be pointed at and limited. And each of us are limitless spiritual beings infinitely beyond the limitations of our finite dimensions. And only when seen as part of something infinitely greater than an individual piece of flesh 
only then is counting permissible. And that's a whole nother discussion, but that's the so that's the deep principle behind that. And the Gemara itself, in Tanya's staff, Ches Amabez, applies this principle to Fila. The Gemara says that if you are walking to your grain storage house to count your grain, then you can daven that your grain should be increased. If, however, you've already started to measure it, you've looked at it, you've started to count it and point to it and say, this is just this, you can no longer daven. Why? Because before you give it concrete form, before you say it is this, it could be anything. Bracha can still flow in. But once, however, you begin to give it finite measure, it can be nothing more than what already is. And davening for, for bracha will be a tefillah shav, a prayer in vain, something that you can no longer do. And now that we understand this relationship between bracha, endless, boundless expansion, of Tunis and Klala to constrict and limit to say it's just this, nothing more. Now we can see Bilam's intentions through new eyes. He attempted to curse Klai Yisrael, which means to cut off their spiritual connection with Hashem. And in response, Hashem didn't only negate Bilam's curses, thwarting his plans, Hashem turned those very curses into brachos, strengthening the connection between Hashem and Klai Yisrael, and reinforcing the channel of bracha that flows from Hashem into this world. Now, to address the earlier questions that we raised, why were brachos as we know them only instituted around the time of the second Beis HaMikdash? The answer is as follows. There are two stages in history. The first lasted from creation until around the time period of Purim and Hanukkah. And this first stage is highlighted by the miracles of Yetzirah Mitzrayim and Ma'an Torah and the presence of Nevuah. And during this stage, Hashem's revelation in this world was more obvious and apparent. The physical world could clearly be seen as an expression of a spiritual reality. It was natural for one to source the physical world back to the spiritual. And as a result, brachos did not need to be instituted. When, when one ate a meal, he would naturally source the food back to Hashem. And the same is true about all other aspects of daily life. Spirituality came naturally and spontaneously. However, with the ending of prophecy came the end of this stage as well. We no longer experience miracles. We no longer see Hashem openly manifest in the physical world. And as a result, Chazal instituted standardized tefillah and standardized brachos for everyone to say throughout the day, the yearly cycle, and the various stages of one's life. The world has bent. The light has faded. We no longer naturally source ourselves back to Hashem, we need help. Someone to point us in the right direction. And this is the function of our standardized brachos and tefillah. It's a guiding path back to Hashem. Every time we eat something, we say, oh, this came from Hashem. Every time we do something, we say, oh, wow, that came from Hashem. The standardized format is identical for everyone, but the internal experience and awareness is unique within each of us. It's the medium through which we can now connect and have that deep existential connection and relationship with Hashem. Our mission 
is to use the physical world as a medium through which we connect back to Hashem. We no longer see reality with a clear lens, but that gives us a unique opportunity to create light within the darkness, to use our free will to choose to see Hashem. We don't only ask for bracha, we create it by choosing to see Hashem's presence flowing into every aspect of our lives. May we be inspired to live lives full of bracha, sourcing every dimension of our lives back to Hashem and living a life of oneness within the realm of two-ness.